Red Cross many years ago, back when I was in, in high school, and uh, I, I took the exam. I went through the, the whole process. I just never actually served as a lifeguard anywhere. And uh, in case you don't know, uh, part of that exam includes uh, a very long swim. I don't remember how long it was. It felt like miles. Um, anyway, it was multiple laps. But the thing that is most memorable to me was the simulated rescue that we had to do. Uh, our instructor for senior life-saving, I'm not kidding, the man was probably about double my size, and he was there floating. Not, he was doing more than floating. He was floating and grimacing uh, there in the deep end of the pool. And each one of us, if we wanted to pass this course, what we had to do was dive in, go under him, behind him, come around him, put him in a modified chokehold, and then bring him over to the side of the pool. Now, you may be wondering, well, that seems like a rather indirect route. Why didn't you just go straight to him and pull him in? And Well, the reason is, is because it's, it's meant to simulate the real deal. And the real deal goes like this, when someone's actually drowning. When you're, when you're drowning, you tend to flail about grasping for any and everything that might help you float, that might save you, even if and you're not thinking, you've lost all rationality and sanity at that point, you may well drown the person who's trying to help you. Hence, the, the, uh, the indirect route because of the flailing, because of the panic, because of the fear, because of the terror that's, that's setting in. And I bring that up because... It strikes me as, as something of, of an illustration, the response of a drowning victim, whether in the pool or, or in a larger body of water. It strikes me that there's some, a similarity to how uh, someone like that drowning in the water responds to, in, in fear and panic as, as, as how we respond oftentimes in our own experiences of, of fear and panic, flailing about, reaching out for any and everything that might help us even if it surely won't. Well, the Lord in His love for us uh, is pointing us toward another way, something that will actually sustain, something that will actually save. It's actually Him, the only one who can. Uh, if you have a Bible, I ask you to turn with me to Psalm 124. We're continuing in this series, this series through the Songs of Ascent, Psalm 124. 24, we're just making our way one at a time uh, through these 15, this, this compilation of these 15. And just as a re reminder, or perhaps you haven't heard me say this, that's fine, uh, just as a reminder, uh, here's what we have with this compilation of these, these psalms, these 15, starting with Psalm 120 and going on to Psalm 134. This was a compilation of psalms put together at some point, we don't know really the history, very, it was a little, little murky there, but we know that it was put together at some point to give to pilgrims, Israelites, as they were making their way through different parts of the land up to Jerusalem, up to the temple for the annual feast. And these songs, were they were to sing them together aloud, both two, two things. One, to give them a means of expressing their hearts, and also at the same time, by God's grace, a means of something to shape their hearts at the same time. And that's the very sense in which we should be reading these psalms as well. Okay? So, Psalm 124 is where we are. Hear now God's Word. 
If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side when people rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us up alive when their anger was kindled against us. Then the flood would have swept us away, the torrent would have gone over us, then over us would have gone the raging waters." Blessed be the Lord who has not given us as prey to their teeth. We have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Well, let's pray together for a moment. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for these songs. Thank you for how they shape and how they express our hearts, and uh, we ask for that you would do that dual work in us now. Um, we thank you for your mercy to your people back then, giving them the, uh, this compilation of, of these psalms. Uh, we thank you for your mercy to your people today, uh, that in, in different circumstances and a different context, we, we have these words. We have your word. Um, clearly, there is a sense in which the people were, were looking back in order that they might be able to move forward. And we ask that you would help us to be able to do the same thing. Help us by your mercy, please, Jesus, to look back that we might be able to move forward. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, I want to share with you as we start uh, an observation from the great philosopher Jerry Seinfeld, um, something that's well worth noting. According to most studies, people's number one fear is public speaking. Number two is death. Death is number two. Does that sound right? That means to the average person... If you go to a funeral, you're better off in the casket than doing the eulogy. Now, that's pretty funny. It's a good little diversion in thinking about I don't really want to think about fear too much. I really don't want to think about the things that, that cause me worry and anxiety. Mm, maybe we should. So let's, uh, let's turn from the, the great philosopher to uh, the behavioral scientists. Uh, the behavioral scientists, intrigued and saddened by the misery that anxiety and worry can cause so many of us, Lucas Lafreniere decided to look at this from a scientific perspective. Now, Dr. Lafreniere is a clinical psychology researcher at Penn State. Okay, I'm going to read just an excerpt from, from an article I was just reading this past week on, on a study that, that he was leading. In his study on worry... Participants were asked to record their worries and how they caused distress and interfered with their lives. Each night at 10 p.m., they reported how much time they spent thinking on each specific worry throughout the day. Then, 20 days after that period, they reviewed each entry and reported whether any of the worries had become true. The good news is Lafreniere's study found that in his survey of worrisome people, now note this, 91.4% of their worries never actually happened. 
Now, 91.4% sounds really good. Unless you're a worrisome, anxious person who then quickly realizes that they could be in the 8.6%. Right? Yeah. So, we need more than statistical data, helpful as they can be. I'm not, I'm not dismissing the, the, the help that, that can be found there, but we do need more. We clearly need more than the behavioral scientists can give us. We clearly need more than statistical studies. We need an unshakable promise. We need an assurance that's actually not going to go anywhere because of its source, because of the one who speaks that promise to us. Well, then that takes us to Psalm 124. Now, again, this has a, a particular historical setting. We're going to talk about that here in, in just a minute. Um, and it was unique to its time, but as is the case with all of these psalms, they are meant to point past themselves to something else, to, to people who are still following God, to disciples of, of Jesus today. This is something for us as, as believers, as Christians, for us today, as we are walking the pilgrim's path and find ourselves from time to time, or maybe even quite often, beset by dangers, toils, and snares of all varying kinds along the way, and find the footing and find the path to be treacherous, and find there to be foes and foils around every corner. We need to know what this psalm has to tell us, and what this psalm is telling us is, in fact, the good news, the assurance is this. Our help is in the Lord. Our help is in the Lord. Therefore, we need not fear. Benediction. Now, we're going to unpack that, but I mean, that's really, I, I really don't have anything else to say. Our help is in the Lord, so we have nothing to fear. Now, what do we see here in this psalm about this help? What do we learn here? We learn a lot as we look at these two things. First, the great distress that the psalmist is, is describing. And then following right up on that, the, great, the, greater, the greater deliverance that the psalmist experiences, okay? In those things, we learn something about this help, this great help from our great God. So let's look at these in turn. First, the great distress, uh, the, the panic that they're experiencing, the anxiety, the worry, what's coming upon them, their circumstances. Verses 1 to 5, we see that very clearly laid out for us quite powerfully. Let me read that again. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, when people rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us up alive when their anger was kindled against us. Then the flood would have swept us away. The torrent would have gone over us. Then over us would have gone the raging Waters. Well, obviously, there's a lot of poetic imagery being used here, but it's meant to describe something real. 
terrifying circumstances that David and the people were experiencing. Uh, now, enemies are on the rise. That's that's first thing to note here. The, the enemies, their enemies were, were on the rise. Now, there's a few things we don't know here. Just to be clear, we don't know exactly when this was. There are several possibilities in David's life story that he could be describing, we, but we don't know exactly because he doesn't tell us exactly when this was, nor do we actually know who this was. Now, likely, likely these are non-Israelites when he speaks of those who are rising up uh, and, and threatening them. Likely, these are non-Israelites that he's describing, Gentiles, the peoples of the nations around them. But we don't know. We're not told. That, that said, we do know something pretty clearly. We may not know those things, but we do know these things. And, and, and that is the, ultimately the source of the hostility. Now, you say, well, wait a minute. How could you say we know the source of the hostility if we don't know when this was and who it was from? Glad you're asking. That means you're paying attention. Okay, so we know ultimately the source of the hostility because no matter what the presenting issues are, it was something far beyond and far deeper than just, oh, I don't know, a fight over access to grazing pastures or water access or mineral resources, whatever the case may be. This, whatever it was... This was far beyond anything like that, far deeper than anything like that. And we know that because the us, the us of Psalm 124 are the Israelites. God's chosen people, the nation that He had set aside in His grace to be the vehicle to be the instrument through whom the Messiah would come. So this hostility, this hatred that they are experiencing is, is really a satanic venting. There's much more going on here than geopolitical issues. This is an eternal drama playing out on the earthly plane. So we, can re- we really can say we do know the source of this hostility as the enemies are rising, and that then helps us to understand how, why these possibilities that are looming that he describes here, why they are so terrifying and why the, the vitriol is really just so vicious. Uh, you look and you just think in terms of what he's talking about here, verses 1 to 5. I mean, these are a series of, of terrifying what-if scenarios. Like, like the, the worst of the worst-case scenario, God left us, right? That's the worst of the worst-case scenarios. That's the nightmare, the nightmare of nightmares, if you want to think in terms of a what-if scenario. And, and poetically, powerfully, he uses image like this, that we were, if it had not been for the Lord, we would have been swallowed alive. Harkening back, possibly, using imagery, harkening back maybe back to the great exodus in Moses' day, seeing parallels to that in, in, their, in their own day, swallowed alive perhaps by a great monster, you know, poetically speaking, or, or maybe even possibly fissures opening up in the earth's crust because of, a, of an earthquake, and there's actually records of that happening in the Old Testament, and people being swallowed alive. 
But actually, it could well just simply be death itself, because death is described this way in the Old Testament. And it's maw, swallowing, swallowed alive. Though that's not bad enough, he speaks of being the possibility of their being swept away. Waters, these torrential rains, waters, and if it, you may, some of you may know that oftentimes in the ancient Near East, when water is referred to in any kind of symbolic way, it's meant to be understood as chaos and, 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 and deep danger, un, unfathomable danger, chaos, uncontrollable danger. It could be hearkening back to flash floods in that region of the world. Uh, there are, are wadis, especially out near the, the Dead Sea, uh, these uh, deceptively dry riverbeds that seem like, oh, this looks like a good shortcut for us to travel down and, and move from one place to another. Well, that's fine so long as you don't have a flash flood, and it can easily outpace naive travelers in that part of the world and sweep them away, and it still happens today. It still happens today. Well, these are the images that uh, David is using here, the great distress pointing us towards the reality of and the necessity of the Lord's help because it's overwhelming. It's too much, overwhelming and overcoming, the, uh, the great, the great Distress. And so the idea here is what he's saying here, what the psalm is meant to point us towards in understanding is this, is as you look ahead, think back to what you've been saved from. As you look ahead, think back to what you have been saved from. That, that's the idea here in recounting these worst-case scenarios, what nearly happened but didn't. Think back. Think back to what He's done in the past as you look forward. And, and we know on this side of history, as we're looking back at the, the, the full story, we know that as real as the plight was that Moses experienced in his day, Moses and the Israelites with the, coming out of Egypt, and David and the, and the Israelites and under attack, likely by the, the Philistines in, in some way. The, the, the very historical, real plight that they are experiencing is meant to point us towards something even worse, a much greater enemy, a much greater danger, a much more intense assault. The tyranny of sin and the fear of death from which, if you are a follower of Jesus, a disciple of Christ, you have been freed. You have been freed from this great distress. That's the deeper message of Psalm 124. You're now free. So there's a sense in which we can say as we're reading this psalm and thinking this through and processing it in our hearts, honestly, we can say again, as you, as you think in terms of, I don't, maybe we could spend some time later. Actually, we probably can't because of masks and six-foot distancing and all that. But if we had the ability to have some time together after the service and compare and say, hey, what's your week got coming? 
and compare notes as to, you know, this is what concerns me, and this is what scares me, and this is what's keeping me up at night, and this, and this, and this, and this. As you consider those things, these things, real things that fill your heart with fear and dread, the Lord's word to us is, look at what I've saved you from. Oh, my child. Not belittling what's in front of you, but look at what I've saved you from. That great distress. Our help, friends, is in the Lord. We need not fear. Well, all the more so as we look to part two of the psalm, and not just the, the great distress, but the far greater deliverance. So here we need to look at verses 6 through 8, because this is really the emphasis of the psalm. Blessed be the Lord who has not given us as prey to their teeth. We have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken, and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. So he speaks of the Lord's protection, the Lord's protection, which, of course, is the, the, the only hope of this great deliverance, his protection. He speaks of the snare, the fowler's snare. Uh, and in the ancient world, the way that would work is you would set up the trap, you would set up the net, you would bait it, you would put a decoy in there. Of course, you can do that still today, and you're trying to lure that bird, your, your prey, into that, into that snare, into the fowler's snare. And once that bird is caught, that's it. That little bird is helpless and hopeless, except here, because there's an escape, an escape from the snare because the snare is broken. The snare is broken, the bird escapes, the bird is is freed. And so that which was once helpless and hopeless is anything but. Now, how can that be? How can the, the storyline that looked like it was heading towards nothing but doom be just so abruptly changed? How can the plot be so radically transformed because of the protecting presence of the Lord with His people. And this is so important. If there was a, a verse, I would encourage you in this psalm to memorize. Inscribe it upon your heart. It's verse 8. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and and earth. Think of how He has revealed Himself. He is the Lord of all creation. Everything that is owes its existence to Him. Therefore, nothing in the sphere of created existence can resist Him. How would it be possible? How would it be possible for anything to withstand, to resist the Lord of all creation? But that's not the only way that he 
describes himself in this psalm and impresses this upon the hearts of his people. He is not only the Lord of creation, but the God of the covenant. Four times in this short psalm, he, for, for repetition's sake, and we've been seeing this throughout this little series, and you're going to see it a few more times as we move through this series. Repetition, repetition. What am I doing? I'm repeating, right? Repetition for emphasis. For emphasis, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, the, Lord, the covenant name of God as He has revealed Himself to us, His people, who moves towards us, not because of anything in us, but because of everything in Him. Ever faithful, forever faithful, His steadfast love endures forever. That's how He has revealed Himself. That's who's one, that is the one who, in whose presence we live. And it's why we live. And therein he promises some things to us. And here we see yet some more repetition in verses 1 and 2. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, you know, lest we miss the point, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, again, the repetition, the emphasis, you hear it? The Lord is on our side. Now, Don't get confused here. He is not on our side in the sense of political issues or partisan matters or whatever your hobby horse is. You know, you may may remember Joshua meets the angel of the Lord just before the battle of Jericho and says, are you on our side and how does the Lord answer? Neither. Actually, the question was, are you on our side or their side? And the answer is no. He's on his side. Are you? That's the question. Okay, he's saying not in that sort of sense, but in a relational sense. I am on your side in the deepest, most encouraging, most beautiful heart uh, transformative sense. I am on your side. I am with you. This is the Emmanuel promise, folks, here in Psalm 124. I am with you. In fact, it's actually the Emmanuel promise in the past tense. I, wa- I have been with you. I have been with you. I will be with you. I am with you. I'm on your side. What else do you need to hear? In the face of the great distress, you see the great distress, whatever whatever it is, whatever it is you're picturing, whatever it is you're feeling, whatever it is that's coming to your mind, it is outmatched and outdone by the greater deliverance, by the great deliverer himself. His covenantal love, because of his covenantal love, His affection, His commitment, His devotion is locked on you. Target acquired. And the little red circle doesn't change. 
locked on you forever with us, for us. So just as surely as the, the, the plight, the, the great distress, real and historical as it is, whatever it was in David's time, is meant ultimately to point to something beyond itself, something eternal, so to the deliverance, so to the rescue, so to the redemption that is spoken of here in this psalm, which means we're speaking here of the finished work of Jesus in Psalm 124, the ultimate deliverance. Friend, if you have put your hope in Christ, if you have entrusted your life to Him, your sin, no matter what it is you have done, cannot condemn you because God is just. And that condemnation has already been poured out in full upon Jesus, so there's nothing left. You're free. You're free right now. There are no hoops for you to jump through. There is no to-do list that you've got to work through. There's no poo-bah you need to consult. It's done. It's, it's done. Can I just put it this way? This has consequences. Romans 8, Paul in soaring language speaks of this in, in Romans 8. I, we don't have time to we, really do us well as application to read the whole chapter, but I'll just hit some high points. Verse 1, there is therefore, based on everything he's just said, chapters 1 to 7, there is therefore now, now, get that? Not later, now. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Verses 31 to 35. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Now skipping over to verse 38, I, for I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. In Christ Jesus, our Lord. So, name your fear. Own it. Name it. Put it before Him. And take this psalm to heart. Take this psalm to heart. Our help is in the Lord. We have no need to fear. Now, you know, fear does weird things. Fear does strange things to the human heart. 
it, uh, it's really what is behind uh, our desire to, to control and to manipulate, right? Whatever sphere that might be in, that's, that's, what, that's what's driving that, is our fear. It's oftentimes what's at the root of so much of our anger. Just trace it down, down in the roots, you pull that sucker up, whoa, look at that, that's fear. Uh, it also can make us withdraw, to withdraw from one another. Fear. Fear makes us do that when we don't understand. When we're afraid of saying the wrong thing or doing the wrong thing. We don't get the pain. We don't get the struggle. We don't get the heartache. We don't get where they're coming from. So it doesn't make any sense, but our response so oftentimes on the horizontal plane with one another is fear is to withdraw. You know, we do the same thing with God. Fear can make you withdraw from God. Uh, we, we look at our circumstances. We look at what's going on or not going on around us. It seems like no one's on the bridge. This ship is just out of control. And so we decide to take the helm. Because our circumstances, because of all of, our, of what we see in our circumstances, and our circumstances are all that we see. But you see, if all that you see are your circumstances, you don't see anything. If all you see are your circumstances and you don't see God, you don't see anything. At least not truly. Really? You don't see God. And you think you can see? You can't see anything. So if all you see are your circumstances and your heart is filled with fear, you pull back. You withdraw. We give up. Friends, we don't need to do that. Our help is in the Lord. Our help is in the Lord. We need not fear. Can we pray? Lord Jesus, you know this path that you have put us upon very well because you have walked it yourself and you are walking it with us now. So, of course, you know the dangers, the toils, and the snares. We know that the counsel that we have from our King is to look back, that we might then look forward, to be able to move forward, even in the midst of a very real distress. We pray that you'd help, to help us to keep our eyes on the one who delivers us from our distress, who has and is and will forever the worst, the worst imaginable. You are our deliverer. Oh, Father, you who did not spare your own Son, but gave him up for us all, surely we can know that you will give and provide and supply all that we need. It sounds like a very Sunday school, vacation Bible school kind of thing to say, but it's just true. And we ask that you would weave it into the fabric of our hearts and the way we respond to any and everything around us. We pray in your name. Amen. Well, we are now going to continue in this service of worship in the celebration of the Lord's Supper. Uh,
Uh, so if I may ask my fellow elders to join me at the tables up here, I will explain how we're going to do this in just a second, but let me just sort of, uh, if, I'm, if I may, set the table in a metaphorical way. So this is Labor Day weekend. We all know that. And some of you may know that the history of Labor Day weekend goes back to the labor disputes in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. And uh, at that time, it seemed befitting to set aside a day to celebrate the common laborer, and hence there were parades and, and speeches that would be given. Now, we don't do that so much today, you know, but we do, of course, have Labor Day. So some of us have three-day weekends, four-day weekends. I don't know, some of you got like 10-day weekends. But um, the, the idea is to, to rest, to take a break, a rest from our labors. Now, in many respects, this is why I'm bringing this up, that's what this is pointing us towards, the supper, a rest from our, our, our labors, not because there's nothing to do, but because Jesus has done it all. And so we can, we can rest. And that's what's being represented here. That's what's being symbolized here. That's what's being communicated here. Uh, that's where our hearts need to be refreshed. Uh, Paul is speaking to that very thing in 1 Corinthians 11, picking up in verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when He was betrayed, took bread. And when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Well, what Paul is helping us to see here is that this is the gospel being shown, okay? Everything else we've been doing so far here in the service is the gospel being spoken. This is the gospel being shown in the broken bread and the, the poured out uh, wine, juice. Um, so, uh, this is an opportunity for us to reflect, a rich opportunity for all of us here in this room to 